My protocol hat says, yes, you need to be where the liquidity is. You need to deploy it to all these different places, you know, not try and pick winners on the L2 or see where the liquidity will flow. And then I put my Infinex hat on and I'm like, who fucking cares? It doesn't matter. Just like build a thing that abstracts it away and figure out where the users are and, and put the liquidity there kind of in real time. And one of those feels very sensible and straightforward. And one of them feels kind of insane. And that's why I'm building Infinex. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we are joined by Kane Warwick, the founder of Synthetics. Kane, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Kane, you've probably explained this before, but I saw on your Twitter profile that you're the head of DeFi. Can you, can you tell me how you got that position? Uh, it's kind of a dumb meme. Um, there was an article that was written uh, that I think quoted a few people, um, and I was one of them. And somehow, they quoted me as the head of DeFi. And so... Uh, from there, I thought it was I thought it was a funny meme, so I stuck it in my Twitter profile. I think I saw one with uh, you being the head of agriculture as well. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, the father of modern agriculture. Um, so that goes back to the old yield farming days, you know, pre DeFi summer. Um, so you know, this idea of, uh, of you know basically changing the way we farm in the world. Beautiful. Those are two good names to have. It's much more yeah. fun than just like founder or CEO. Um, if you're from the yeah. Ethereum community, you definitely know who Kane is. Uh, if you're from Solana or another, like maybe you don't, but it's about time you do. So I'm glad you're tuning into the show with Kane. Um, Kane's an OG in the space. It was first founded Haven. I think that launched basically in 2018, which then transformed its synthetics, which um, is live. And today it's a derivatives platform where there's a big focus on perps right now, but it's also becoming a li liquidity layer for other synthetic protocols to be built on top. Kane, you've been in the space for a really long time, been reading your writings. Some people would say that you were an ETH maxi. I'm not saying you claim yourself as that, but it looks like you're becoming a user experience maxi even more than that. Like the, the focus is on user experience over everything else. What has kind of changed over that time? And why do you say now is the time that we need to focus on that? Yeah, I'm definitely still an ETH maxi. Um, I, would, <laughs> I would say that's true. So, um, you know, the, the thing that has changed, I think, over the last uh, couple of years is we went through this inflection point, um, you know, leading up to DeFi summer, where all of a sudden people realized that DeFi was working. Um, you know, there were a bunch of interesting projects that had deployed contracts onto Ethereum. Uh, and, you know, there was a whole bunch of interesting things that were happening and being built. Um, and, you know, you could interact with those things. It wasn't like the ICO days where, you know, the only sort of value proposition was just like dumping money into, you know, a, a treasury somehow, right? That, you know, buying tokens via, via an ICO. Um, and so I think that um, there were a lot of people in the space who were caught by surprise by that. And when DeFi Summer happened, people were like, oh, wow, there's, there's all this activity going on, right? The problem was that when we sort of hit uh, like March 2020, um, we got to a point where, you know, the, the kind of flash crash showed that we had some issues in terms of scaling that, you know, there were a lot of different things that were now connected composability, you know, is double edged sword, all of these different contracts were connected to each other. So you had, you know, flash loans in Aave and, you know, things in compound and people arbitraging between those two and, you know, maker, uh, positions and, you know, all of these different things that were going on. And so, um, the first kind of, uh, indication that I think we were going to have issue scaling was March 2020. Um, and then it just got worse from there. And so by the time we got to the end of DeFi summer, it was like, what are we 
doing here, right? Like this is not going to work. You know, we can only accommodate uh, a really small group of users. And so that was where I think a big focus shifted towards layer twos, layer two scaling, um, you know, the, the L2 roadmap of Ethereum became a bit of a thing. And this idea of like Ethereum as a, a settlement layer, um, you know, uh, where you, you stored data and sort of executing transactions, um, you know, became, became a bit of a thing. And so I think that we spent a lot of time between, you know, DeFi summer in 2020 and today building out, uh, the scaling solutions and, and building out all of this, this, um, infrastructure to be able to support, you know, the second wave of DeFi, if you will. Um, and I think that we're finally here. I think we now have demonstrated pretty, um, pretty credibly that layer twos are working. Um, there's a whole bunch of things you can do on them that you couldn't do on L1. Um, and now it's time to actually take those things that we've built over the last few years and bring them to, you know, the users, meet the users where they live. Yeah, Kane, when you first started, I think Synthetics was one of the per first protocols to work with Optimism on layer two scaling. And at that time, L2 scaling was not really consensus yet can you like at this point it just seems like everybody in the ethereum community has kind of decided like that's the best way to scale is this modular roadmap can you talk about like what was the disagreement at the time on that l2 scaling and how were you able to kind of see and get the synthetics community to start working with optimism so i think that in the ethereum community there had been a number of proposals for how to scale ethereum Right. Um, you know, state channel, all, all kinds of things, right. That have been going on for years. Right. Um, you know, and there was also the, this transition, um, to proof of, uh, stake that was, you know, planned. And so, you know, I remember, uh, watching Vitalik talk in 2017 and, you know, being like, we're six months away from, you know, the merge basically. And, and, you know, uh, it, obviously it took a lot longer than that. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think we, um, we had this problem where, it was unclear what the solution was, but it was it was you know this growing issue, right? Um, and you know there were alternatives out there, right? Like Solana um, at that time, near um, you know even some of the other alto ones that weren't necessarily going for scaling, like Polkadot or, or Cosmos, but were going for like a sharded approach or you know these these different um, you know chains that were kind of interconnected, et cetera. So there were all these different things, and it wasn't really clear what Ethereum's solution was going to be. Um, and I think that there had been, uh, you know, again, a lot of confusion due to the roadmap changing over the years, right? Um, and, you know, we saw the Unipig demo and it just clicked for me. I was like, no, this is the thing. Like, finally, this is like, this is clearly the thing. And so, um, you know, the community got really excited about that. We started talking to Optimism. You know, they were looking for a project that had a complex smart contract suite that they could work with to, you know, basically bed down the network and, and figure out what was needed to actually get this into production. Um, and so it was a very powerful symbiotic relationship between us and Optimism because, you know, they were coming from, uh, you know, at the time, a very theoretical standpoint about how to do this. And we were coming from a very practical standpoint of running a project on L1 and needing to, you know, solve some immediate problems. So I think the combination of those two things, you know, got us to a really good place, but it did take a long time, you know, it took, it's taken, you know, a couple of years to kind of get to this point. So, so there, there are other teams. So for example, DYDX is probably the most notable, which chose to go on Cosmos and do their own app chain. Um, I'm sure you saw uh, Rune's announcement of Maker forking the SVM as well and maybe doing their own app chain for some of the parts. So uh, it, it does seem like maybe some of the earlier DeFi folks are also interested in the app chain thesis, but it seems like you went with um, kind of L2s. I guess, um, you know, for, for maybe other DeFi founders who are thinking about this, 
What made you choose L2s over app chains? Just how do you think about this in general? Yeah, we had, there was an interesting debate between myself and Antonio um, a couple of years ago about this idea of composability versus, you know, scaling or, you know, uh, a siloed app chain sort of thing. And, you know, this is in relation to uh, Starkware at the time, right? So DYDX had chosen Starkware. And I said, look, I think Optimism is going to be a better place to be because you're going to, you're going to have all of these other contracts, you know, and other protocols like Aave and Compound and things like that, that will be, um, you know, on these networks. And composability is the kind of the secret sauce. Now, the reality is that I think as a perps platform, you can actually get away with not, um, you know, having composability, you can be a bit siloed. Um, and so I think, you know, in hindsight, DYDX kind of won that one. Um, and they were able to scale up faster than synthetics. But I do think now that we've caught up, and the execution engine is sort of, you know, uh, feature parity between DYDX and, and us. And I would argue even between you know, us and centralized exchanges. Now it's a question of, you know, is that composability actually valuable? Um, you know, that, that other property that we have versus going to a pure app chain. Yeah, when you were talking about composability, I think this was a tweet you had the other day. Um, you mentioned DYDX and you said, actually, right now, at least it's their UX and token incentives that have probably won out. And that's one thing that's led to Infinex, which is a new project that you're working on that's going to leverage Synthetics protocol. Can you give a high level of what Synthetics is and why Infinex is something that's needed, you think, to actually get to that level where DEXs can compete with centralized exchanges? Yeah, so Synthetics, um, the current version, uh, B2X, um, is a system that pools liquidity. Um, people, uh, people deposit SNX, the, the um, staking token, and liquidity is pooled to support a bunch of different markets. So spot markets, perp markets, um, you know, different instruments, um, you know, things like gold silver, et cetera, um, you know, and then obviously a bunch of uh, cryptocurrencies. So basically, it's a, it's a trading engine. It lets people trade. Um, and then we've got a number of different approaches to um, uh, enabling that liquidity to, you know, kind of uh, support trading. So one of them is perps. So we have a specific module that kind of connects to that liquidity um, and enables leverage trading. Right. Um, and, you know, all of these different components are being upgraded. Um, all the time, but V2X right now is, is currently the, the, you know, the one that's live on mainnet. Um, and V3 uh, is going to be coming out fairly soon, um, which basically upgrades a bunch of things. And then we've got a new version of perps. The perps module is actually being upgraded as well to allow cross margin and, you know, a bunch of other, um, you know, features and things like that. And so this trading engine has been built over the last five years. And it's been getting better and better and better. Uh, and I think in the last six months, it's kind of crossed an inflection point where it went from not really being able to compete with, um, you know, even other DEXs and definitely not able to compete with centralized exchanges to now able to compete with centralized exchanges. And that shift, that kind of inflection point has put pressure on us to say, okay, well, if this thing's as good as Binance, why is Binance doing 30, 40, $50 billion in Notional and we're doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 million. Like what's going on there, right? Like the, there's you know, something wrong. And so the solution to that in my mind was that the UX and the onboarding and all of the kind of, uh, you know, trading experience itself is missing. That, you know, the execution engine's great, but that user experience is still uh, lacking. And so the solution to that in my mind was to build a new user interface that was focused purely on the user experience. One thing that I'm curious about um, as somebody that's 
not too familiar with L2s and, and how they interact with DeFi is a common criticism kind of is the fragmentation of liquidity across maybe the different modular stacks as opposed to all being on like a general purpose L1 and maybe enabling better capital efficiency. How, how do you think about that? Is that is there any merit to that? Or like, what is what is the deal with fragmentation and L2s? Do you think it's overblown? No, I, th- I think it's really problematic, actually. Um, I think it is a, a big issue. You know, if you have a monolithic L1, like we did back in DeFi summer, there's a whole bunch of things that happen, right? All the liquidity is there. Someone deploys a new contract, people think it's exciting, all the liquidity flows in, right? That system is now broken in, in Ethereum, you know, to an extent, right? Um, because, you know, bridging in and out is costly and, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, points of friction, right? Different tokens, wrap tokens, et cetera. Um, and we've seen the impact that this has had even on uh, token systems on Arbitrum and Optimism, where, you know, they're very interesting projects that if they're running on L1 and they can't, right? So they actually can't run on L1. They can only work on an L2. But if they were running on L1, then these projects would be, I think, doing much better in, ter- you know, in a bunch of different dimensions, right? Having more liquidity, um, you know, there'd be more awareness, there'd be more token holders, there would be more participation. Um, and so being on an L2 right now is definitely um, a disadvantage for a project versus being on you know, a monolithic L1. Um, but what I think we're looking at doing with Infinex is to abstract that away and to say, okay, you know, you've got all these siloed um, you know, pools of liquidity in, in terms of L1s. But what if you put an interface on top of them that abstracted away where those things were, right? Um, and a lot of people have been talking about this account abstraction and, you know, different solutions and different web wallets and, you know, different mobile wallets that kind of, you know, don't require uh, you to do bridges or, you know, to um, sign transactions or whatever. Um, but I think that if it's done like at the application layer, it can be done in a way which really does abstract it away. And then it won't matter whether the liquidity is on Arbitrum or Optimism, or it won't matter whether the token you want to trade is on base, for example, right? If you want to trade Frentech shares or something like that, you will just turn up to an application and that application will give you different options to trade. Um, your assets will already be, you know, uh, stored inside that application on chain, um, and you'll have access to liquidity wherever it is, um, and that will kind of unify and create this layer that you know abstracts away that liquidity fragmentation. Ideally, that's that's the idea. So um, maybe two follow up questions to that. One is that how far away do you think that is? Because you know, the, technically speaking, that seems relatively challenging. And two, and sort of unrelated, is kind of I argue there's like almost the L2 wars happening right now you know you have optimism and then there's arbitrum there's polygon there's scroll uh zk sync starknet uh fuel I guess like uh there's just a bunch of and then now eclipse with the SVM L2 as well um as a founder who was you know you 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 made your company um your, your company went big on the L1 now you you went to L2s how do you think about the landscape of L2s like what decision factors do you look for when choosing to work with an L2? So for us, you know, the decision was kind of made a long time ago, right? We went, we went to optimism and we're on optimism now. Um, the decision that we're trying to work out uh, and that's kind of playing out in the community uh, right now is where do we go next, right? Because there is this idea, um, you know, this, this thesis that there are unique and distinct users who are on different chains who will not transact on another chain, 
right? And we know this is true for things like Solana, right? Like I think I think it's fair to say there are people that are on Solana that are not on Ethereum L1, right? And they're just distinct users, right? Um, but what's interesting is I think that we're starting to see this play out even on L2s, that there are Arbitrum users and Optimism users, and they're not the same people. Um, and so, you know, this is a question I think for all projects to to figure out is like, if there is a pool of users who you can't access, right? Um, then you need to be on that chain. So what do you do? You know, do you deploy to every chain? Um, and, you know, do you uh, fork your project and, and deploy it to every chain? Do you try and create some unified uh, set of contracts where like all the governance happens on one chain, et cetera? And I actually had a, a, a very long blog post about this challenge uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, the conclusion that I think I, I came to from a protocol level is that the solution is maybe to build your own app chain where your governance can live and, and maybe some liquidity can live, et cetera, and then deploy and create a beachhead across all of the other chains that you want to play in. You know, in our case, these are mainly EVM chains, right? Um, you know, so things like Avalanche and, you know, whatever, um, Optimism, Arbitrum, you know, Polygon, et cetera. Um, but there, these are still, you know, as you say, these are still unsolved technical challenges, right? Like these are things that, um, you know, we need to figure out how we, um, we sort through people have sort of asked why an app chain like that's you know like you've already got all these other problems like why create an, another problem right and my theory behind that is that an app chain allows you as a project as a protocol to be kind of credibly neutral and to say like this is the place where our governance exists we're not picking winners you know we're not saying arbitrum is better than optimism or you know base is better than you know polygon or whatever right we, we've got our own place where you know we exist um, and then we have a neutral deployment on every other chain and Wherever there is demand, liquidity can flow, right? And so, you know, on Polygon, people can deposit ETH or on Avalanche, they could, you know, uh, theoretically, you know, deposit the native token there, right? You know, or, or any other EVM chain that, that that, you know, could go for. Um, it's not clear that that is a sensible thing to me, right? Like, it might be the thing we're forced into, but, you know, to Mert's question earlier, like, is this the problem of fragmentation of liquidity? Like, yeah, on, you know, that problem doesn't exist if you just have a monolithic L1, right? There's no other places to go. You just go to that place, you focus on that community. Now, you could argue that, okay, even if you have a monolithic L1 and, you know, let's say it's Ethereum L1 and Solana and Cosmos, let's say. Let's say there's three, right? You still kind of have this problem and you still need to think through, okay, well, where do we deploy? Um, but given how hard it is to connect those chains you know, it kind of forces you into a, a decision of just deploying a distinct instance, right? And saying, let this operate over here. Um, you know, you, there really isn't the option to try and merge them and, and share liquidity and, and do all this stuff. Um, whereas I think there is a bit of pressure to kind of try and do that on on L2s and, and you know, um, and merge them. But I think that there's another solution, which is Infinex, right? Like Infinex is a different pathway of solving the same problem. So, um one thing that I ask, I think I've asked every DeFi founder so far is, so you talked about kind of going to where the users and where the liquidity, uh, where the users are and liquidity is. Um, and um, one thing that I find interesting is like, like for a perp exchange, you don't actually need, like you can kind of be in an island like the UIDX uh, to some extent. Um, and one question I always ask is, to what extent do you want to be chasing um or expanding to where the users are, which are crypto native users. And then 
how do you contrast that with onboarding new people onto crypto who probably won't care which chain you're on, but just want that user experience and experience what crypto has to offer? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so yeah, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine who is another OG in the space. Um, and I thought that this was like trivially obvious, right? Like we we're having this conversation. He was like, uh, you know, I don't really get this whole idea of like trying to abstract it away. Like, why are you doing this? Right. And I was I was kind of looking at him like, what do you mean? And so I, I walked in through my reasoning and all of a sudden it clicked for him. And and I think some of us, unfortunately, are, are like so DeFi pilled and we've just been living in this DeFi land for so long that like the other non-DeFi users we don't think about. Um, and so here's how I think about it. I think each cycle, you have new users coming into the space, right? Um, and those new users found out about crypto from someone, right? You know, I'm sure... In a year's time, you know, uh, Mert will be getting a bunch of DMs from people being like, hey, is crypto back? Like, what do I do? Where do I go? Right. Um, and, you know, they have some person in their network that they trust or whatever. Um, and, you know, they say, tell me what to do. Right. And every cycle, um, you know, there's been this um, kind of harsh trade off, I think, for most of the people in the space where you kind of want to tell them to go on chain and, and, you know, download MetaMask or like download some wallet or, you know, whatever, right? And even back in the day, like download the Mist browser to like do, go and do ICOs or whatever. You want to tell them that, but then you're kind of like, uh, this person's going to lose all their money. Like, is this a really good, you know, is this a good idea for me to be recommending this, right? And so, you know, you kind of like, you know, sort of grin and go, uh, just jump on Binance, Right. Like you want to get exposure mm. to these tokens, just go to Binance. Right. Like, you know, they're probably not going to lose their money on Binance today. Right. You know, over a given over a long enough time horizon, they will absolutely lose their money on any centralized exchange. Right. It'll get hacked or blow up or steal all the money or whatever. But, you know, um, in, in the short term, you're like, uh, you know, and this is true even for me. Right. Like, um, you know, my mother, uh, I gave her some wrapped Bitcoin a while ago and. I was like, oh, you know, I set up MetaMask and I was like, you know what, honestly, just put it on Binance. Like, just, it'll be easier, right? You're not going to rug yourself. Like, you're not going to lose your private keys or whatever. Mm. Um, and so the, the big question is, when these new users start showing up, where do they flow through to? Do they flow on chain or do they flow into centralized databases like Binance, et cetera? And the, the thing that I think we have not been able to achieve 15 years into this crypto experiment is... When that influx of new users happens, that we are capturing even a, a meaningful percentage of them to bring them on chain, to use crypto tech to engage with crypto. It's kind of insane that we're still using Web2 tech. We're still using databases and, and you know uh, closed source software and proprietary systems to interact with crypto. And that's where the majority of people do. And, and the obvious answer to why that is the case is because of usability risk and safety and usability and all of these different things, user friction, onboarding friction. Um, and so this is where, again, the solution that I see is for um, a DeFi uh, application that uses DeFi for the execution engine, but abstracts away all the complexity and lets people on board. And so my hope is that next cycle, when people are turning up, that you know you guys are like, actually, instead of going to Binance, go to Infinex. Because they can't rug you, right? You can onboard easily. You put a username and password in and an email in. If they lose their password or they lose their email, they lose something, they, this you know, social recovery system, right? They can recover their funds. They 
don't need to worry about you know someone stealing the funds. It's transparent. The funds are on chain. They're still on chain, um, and they can do all the things they want to do. They can you know trade all of the different assets they want to trade. Um, we've got a bunch of different markets. They can trade leverage if they want, uh, but you know it's a much safer uh, solution to be using. And this is just something that has not existed, right? Like in 2017, it was like go use IDEX. Right. Or even, you know, the last cycle, like go and, and, you know, use, uh, Uniswap. Right. And, you know, how many people got, or NFTs, right? Like NFTs are an even better example because centralized exchanges never really got much of a foothold. How many people lost their NFTs because centralized exchanges didn't integrate NFTs? If centralized exchanges had integrated NFTs, you know, a lot fewer people would have lost their NFTs right up until FTX collapsed, then they would have lost a lot of them. But, you know, there was a period where they were getting rugged left and right because, you know, they were forced to be on chain and they did, they just, you know, didn't have the knowledge, right? And some people over time, they'll get that knowledge, they'll learn and they'll get better and they'll understand the UX and they'll understand the, you know, all of that stuff, you know, the security that they need to. Um, but on day zero, when they first, you know, sent a DM saying, how do I get back into crypto? Sending them, you know, into the wheat thresher of MetaMask is just not a, a okay thing to do, right? So we need a better, safer place to send them. Yeah, Ken, I'm curious. Does that mean that your bet on like this next cycle, the users that are coming in, they're not going to be as tied to one ecosystem? Because I know you talk a lot about, including yourself, like, unfortunately, in crypto, we have these things called tokens, and it makes you passionate about a certain community and wanting to transact on a certain tech stack. Do you think that's going to change? Because something with Infinex, like, do you think people will still relate that back to, say, optimism? Or is the goal to just abstract that completely? And you think that's a feasible way just because the user experience is going to be so much better? Yeah, so there's another component of this, right, which is brand, like tr brand trust, right? That, you know, people go on to buy in 2017, right, when Binance really started dominating and they had every asset that you wanted to trade. And people were, you know, creating new accounts or their friends were recommending going to use Binance and, you know, crypto Twitter is talking about Binance, right? That p new users who first used Binance in 2017 have a lot of brand loyalty towards Binance, right? Um, you know, they'll probably stay there right up until the moment when, you know, hopefully not. But like if CZ is planning to rug them, they're not going anywhere. They're just, they're going to stay there like until, you know, the last second, right? Um, and the same thing was true of FTX, right? That they just stuck around way too long because there's brand loyalty. Like people are loyal to brands and they trust, you know, the things that they know. And so the idea that someone would come into the space and get onboarded into Infinex and therefore trust Infinex and, you know, believe that Infinex is doing the right thing for them and, you know, has the right tech and all the safety and transparency and all of the stuff that we want. Um, you know, it's not to say that they will be completely agnostic to, you know, the tech or whatever. They will have a brand loyalty. It'll just be to something that is actually built on uh, decentralized infrastructure, not centralized infrastructure. That's the idea. That's what we're hoping. That makes sense. Okay. And I think you lead a lot of the trends that are in crypto. Like you, you can see farther out than most people can. And I think an interesting debate that we're going to see coming up over the next few years is these front ends building on top of protocols like synthetics. Um, because obviously what you're trying to do is aggregate demand in one place as great UX, but you also see some pushback or a little bit from the synthetics community itself, because you already had like a front end like Quinta. And I, you're going to see this because one thing you have in crypto is it's permissionless to create a front end and plug in into these crypto protocols. So I'm really interested to see like, what you've learned from that, because once you do this, you have to learn like, okay, what are we going to do with fee splits? Because does the front end get, you know, X percent of the fees and then synthetics gets the other half? What tokens should you use to governance the front end? Like, what are some of these issues that you've come across and also just how you think this is going to play out? Well, again, you know, thinking about it from the internet perspective, right? Um, you know, our view is that perps are 
the pointy end of the wedge here, right? This is how you drive the wedge in. And so, you know, the, the fact that there are no new users in crypto right now, and, and there probably won't be for another, you know, six to 12 months, right? All the users that we have are here, right? And so then you look around, you say, okay, well, all of these users, where are they, right? You know, there's like 20 on Solana and like 50 on Ethereum and, you know, a couple hundred on L2s. And then there's like 2 million over in Binance. And, and it's like, well, hang on a second, like, you know, who are we focused on here, right? Like, what are, you know, are we trying to cannibalize users from existing on-chain users or are we trying to, you know, pull people from uh, these databases, right, and pull them out? Um, and so, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, this is the opportunity, right? You know, before new users arrive to go and actually prove that we can credibly take on centralized exchanges. And if we can, and we can start to siphon some of those users away, then when new users show up, the people that they talk to will be using decentralized technology, not centralized technology, right? And so, you know, for me, that's kind of the the crux of it, right? Is is like how do we um, how do we ensure that we are not still running in this next cycle on centralized technology, right? Like that's that's the thing that I'm trying to solve for. Um, and I guess in terms of like seeing trends and and you know seeing all of that sort of stuff. Really, it just comes down to like, if you're doing hard things, right? If you're trying to like solve hard problems, the solution is really right in front of you. You know, the solution's kind of far out, right? And so if you look at everything from first principles and say, okay, you know, what are we trying to achieve? How do we get there? You kind of have, you're forced into, you know, doing something that is, you know, not necessarily available or trying something new. And, you know, I think Infinex in my mind is a, a big you know, is a huge example of this, right? Of like, okay, wait a second. We're now ready to try and go after the existing user base that we have in crypto and, and convert them out of uh, centralized exchanges into decentralized tech. So I want to go a little deeper on that. So because we had, um, we had Drift Protocol here from Solana who kind of has the same vision, which is like, no one should have a reason to trade on Binance in a few years. And so this theme of, Getting away from centralized exchanges to go into decentralized exchanges seems to be one of the core uh, missions of, of DeFi. And one thing I'm interested in is, so my girlfriend's mom watches this show, okay? And and, and she has money on, on Coinbase, okay? And so, like, if I want to sell her, like, hey, like, stop using this protocol or stop using this exchange or database, use DeFi, right? Go go on chain. How how can I sell the store? Like, what? Why should she use it? Uh, like, if, if you had to convince somebody to do this, what would you tell them? Right now, it's you can't. Like, to be totally honest, you cannot. You know, convince. You shouldn't even try. Right? If you were to tr try to convince your girlfriend's mother to go and use DeFi today, you would be doing her a disservice. That's just the reality, right? Because there's two things that can happen to you in crypto. You can rug yourself. Or you can be rugged, right? Like it's just trying to avoid those two things, right? And so if you send your girlfriend's mother out into DeFi, she's gonna rug herself in 20 minutes, right? She's gonna get fished or she's gonna, you know, lose private keys or she's gonna, you know, hand over a password. Something bad is gonna go wrong, right? Whereas on Coinbase, right, she's pretty unlikely to be rugged. Not zero. Like there's not zero chance she gets rugged, right? Like, you know, it's a centralized entity and her assets are not her own when they're sitting on Coinbase, you know? And even though they're a publicly listed company, they're in a fight with the SEC and, you know, who knows how that's going to come out. Like there's bad things could happen to you by being in Coinbase, right? Ideally not. And, you know, they're probably 
one of the most trustworthy exchanges out there. They're, they're certainly, um, you know, uh, under a lot more scrutiny than most, but it's not, you know, something bad could happen. But your girlfriend's mother's 10 or 100 times more likely to rug herself than to be rugged by Coinbase, right? And so you're actually switching her into a more dangerous situation. And so then the question is, okay, well, what is the alternative? Right? Just sit on Coinbase and hope that everything's fine. No, we need to build something that is the middle ground approach where she has the same usability, the same safety, the same, you know, uh, kind of ease of use, right? Um, but is built on decentralized tech, right? So her funds are her own. Her funds are, you know, in a smart contract. It's transparent. You can see where they are and she can't be robbed. Yeah. Kane, I've, I've heard you talk about why. Synthetics tend to do more marketing over the last few years. And you're like, well, couldn't really say it at the time, but the product was kind of crap. <laughs> like, So I, I wasn't going to market it. Like, You don't market a product that's not ready to be used. But you're like, we're at that point. And, and really, for me and Mert's perspective, like Solana's there as well. Like in the last bull market, I think, at least me personally, don't think Solana probably deserved all the, the credit that it got. But at this point, it's actually there. We just don't have users in the space. So we need that next cycle. But we all have products that are more scalable and ready for those users. On these permissionless front ends that you're building on top, I, I just, again, I think this is going to be a really cool trend because I've, I've seen that Impinex on the profit that you make, you're going to essentially buy SNX and become an LP in the synthetics protocol, which is essentially aligning the front end with the back end to some degree, right? Um, and as part of that, I think it creates this whole new competition that you're going to see that's from these front ends trying to align with the protocols that they're using. And that's something that we haven't really seen in the space yet. Um, and yeah, I just think it's going to be really interesting. Like, how do you see that playing out? Because I've you, you mentioned one reason that you like crypto when you think of like permissionlessness, censorship resistance, it's really platform risk that you were looking to get around because you come from a tech background and that's something that you really like about crypto. But like with all this competition on front, do you not see potentially like not synthetics itself or specifically, but these um, protocols when they're choosing a front end, almost giving like generous terms to an enshrined front end where it kind of kills that competition because I just think that's natural human tendency is like we want to pump our token we're going to naturally choose an enshrined layer and then you almost recreate that platform risk at the front end level I'm just curious yeah how do you see that playing out yeah there's a lot to unpack there I think the the primary thing in my mind is we have never really seen anything in DeFi um, any platform any you know uh, system that had market power right? Um, the power has always been at the protocol level. Like, okay, sure, you can go and build a front end, but, you know, what are you going to get out of it? Like, you know, it doesn't give you much control, right? Like the, the, the core infrastructure is permissionless. Anyone can do it and, you know, can fork it, whatever, right? Um, there's been a ton of market power, however, in centralized exchanges, right? Centralized exchanges were the gatekeepers of which tokens got listed, you know, which tokens, uh, you know, which projects people talked about, um, you know, uh, even for a while, they were, you know, doing fundraising, right? And they still invest in a lot of projects, right? So, um, you know, the centralized exchanges have had a lot of market power. Um, but what centralized exchanges can't really do is integrate with DeFi. There's been a few that have kind of tried it in bits and pieces and, you know, doing staking things or whatever, but they end up just kind of building a centralized wrapper around it. It doesn't really, you know, um, utilize it. But if we have, and this, this is kind of the interesting thing, is that the user base of people in DeFi is really not stored anywhere, right? There's no 
um, platform that is kind of capturing those users, they're, they're just kind of on Ethereum, right? Or they're on L2s or they're on Solana or they're on some chain, right? And they're in some wallet or, you know, some, uh, some wallet plugin or, or whatever, but they're not really captured by anyone. Like you could argue maybe MetaMask has a little bit of market power, but it's such a transparent pass through thing that really the only place where they have any market power is in their like, you know, MetaMask swaps sort of situation, right? Like everything else is just like a transparent path where you connect a button and, you know, it's all open source. So, okay, that's the current state, right? Market power in centralized exchanges, minimal to zero market power in DeFi. What would happen if there were a DeFi front end that actually kept its users, that actually had user loyalty and brand loyalty and had assets as well to deploy? What would that look like? And so... We can imagine a scenario where if Infidex does its job well and it goes and takes on <clears throat> the centralized exchanges and, and captures, you know, the existing users who are in the space right now today and starts to migrate some of those on chain, migrates their assets on chain. And now it's sitting there with a big pile of assets and, you know, there's a ton of stuff going on um, in terms of perps. But what's next? Right. Well, OK, we want to create a new margining engine, let's say. Right? And we've got five different options for how we could create that margining engine. We could um, go and integrate Compound or Aave or you know Cream Rip, um, you know, or whatever, right? Like um, you know, some some new lending protocol, right? Um, and when we are deciding which one to integrate, we have a lot of users. We have the ability to send a lot of flow to those protocols. And we actually have negotiating power to say, we want this kind of fee share, right? Or maybe we want to buy tokens in that project so that we can stake those tokens and get a percentage of the fees that are being generated, right? And create a, a flywheel and, and a feedback loop. And in synthetics, that's obvious, right? Like that's an easy thing to do. It's all set up already. It's already been like this for a while. There's fee share, there's all kinds of things. But it's not as clear how that works on something like Aave, right? Or Compound or whatever. Um, and so this is going to be one of the interesting challenges is that, you know, uh, a DeFi front end that has market power, that has the ability to go out and, you know, advocate for its users and leverage the fact that it has a ton of users and a ton of AUM is going to be able to streamline things that currently there is no actor in the space can even do that. Yeah, I think I think this is so exciting because this like goes to aggregation theory when you have somebody like Facebook and you can monetize the suppliers underneath it, which are maybe like the new suppliers or just like me and you posting on Facebook, right? Like everyone's treated the same on your timeline and it is like commodity. And in the sense that Synthetics has been focusing on liquidity for the last like four or five years, right? So they've kind of solved that side. Um, you have stakers, you have the liquidity there, but now with Infinex, you're going after demand. And at least how it's played out in Web2, whoever controls the demand really controls like the revenue flow, they control the supply and people start coming to them because you're going to have a competition between not specifically synthetics, but these underlying protocols, the apps built on top like Infinex and then also the wallets on like who is going to be that front end and that aggregator. Um, it's going to be really interesting because you already pointed it out. If, if Infinex or another app becomes that, you actually will have influence on the protocols underneath you and the wallets like on top. And I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if you eventually got into the wallet game yourself, if you did control that, you know, distribution. I know that's that's probably down the line, but um, I think that's really fascinating because this is like the next step once you actually build out the back end of crypto and DeFi um, that you get to, and that's like focusing on demand, which is the actual fun part because we'd all like to see some users. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, just to be clear though, right? Like I think Infinex is already in the wallet game. 
right? Like the way that Infinex is set up, you create a username and password, you deposit your assets into the Infinex contracts. They're non-custodial, right? They're on-chain, but those assets are there and they're deployable, right? You can basically only use those assets in things that the synthetics, sorry, that Infinex UI supports, right? So, you know, synthetics initially, right? But there's nothing stopping us from integrating some cool new thing on Solana, right? Because we're abstracting away, it's not an EVM thing, right? It's not, you know, an L2 thing. It's not an Ethereum thing. It's just assets that are stored somewhere. And, you know, obviously you need bridging and there's some other stuff that would need to, you know, uh, be integrated. But if there's some cool new Solana thing that's blowing up, and this is, you know, again, gets back to my thesis around where do users come from each cycle and why do they end up in one place versus another? The place they end up in is the place where the cool, new, interesting thing is always there. Every time they turn up and they open up that application, it's got all the stuff they want, right? And so if you go, if, you know, if Solana, someone on Solana deploys some crazy new yield farming scheme or, you know, some weird stable coin or something and people want to interact with it, right? They've got two options. They can go and figure out how to bridge to Solana, you know, install a Solana wallet, um, you know, uh, start, you know, signing transactions, all that sort of stuff, right? Which some people will do. But that's a huge filter, right? You know, 95% of people are going to be filtered out of that, right? Um, or it can be integrated into something like Infinex and their assets are already there and it's now just another button. And they're like, oh yeah, cool. I, I wanted to play around with that, you know, weird new Ponzi stablecoin. Click button and now it's there, right? Uh, and, you know, the more you reinforce that behavior, the more powerful it becomes where I just go, well, there's some weird new thing that I just heard about on Twitter if I open up Infinex, it's going to be there. Like, I just know it's going to be there, right? In the same way that, you know, you open up Binance and like whatever new crazy ICO token had just launched, it was there every time within a couple of hours, right? They were just bang, 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 every listing, right? Um, and so I think that the ability to integrate every new DeFi system or protocol or, you know, whatever scheme is there is going to just open up a, a huge... Like open up the floodgates on all of these users who were just not able to kind of interact with that in DeFi summer and even, you know, all the way through last cycle. I want to ask a question about uh, the state of decentralization in crypto right now. But before I do that, I want to uh, pull up this tweet uh, that, that you made that I, that I really liked uh, and, and, and use it as a segue. Okay. So, so the tweet is, look, I get it. You can trade XRP and make money. Congratulations. I'm sure there's also money to be made in liquefying orphans as fuel for street lamps or something, but you have to have a line you are not willing to cross. So can you, uh, like, what do you mean by that? Like what approach, obviously like you're, you're, you're kind of trolling, but like, what is the, uh, what fundamental message are you trying to convey there? Like what, what is the line to cross? Look like, you know, speculation drives everything, right? Um, you know, speculation is what gets us to uh, deploy capital into new things, right? You know, if if we remove speculation from the world, then we would be living in, you know, a far poorer world, right? Um, and so uh, I think that there is this kind of view of like speculation is inherently bad or something, right? And, you know, that like you should discourage speculation and, um, you know, you should discourage investment. But like every type of investment, you know, is somewhere on the speculation continuum, right? You know, you go and buy bonds for your pension, 
you know, plan or whatever. That's a form of speculation, right? Like, you know, it, you can't just say, well, speculate, like you're assuming that something will happen in the future, right? You're assuming some return or some, you know, financial transaction in the future, right? You, you're making a bet, essentially, on what the future state of the world will be. That's speculation, right? Uh, and so discouraging speculation is a bit insane to me, right? Um, that said, you know, there are things that I would say uh, are probably net negative, right, in the space. And one of those things is if you have a group of people who are selling snake oil, right, and are, you know, selling something that is clearly not real and hasn't been real for a very long time, you are you're by by that thing happening, right, and by you participating in that form of speculation, you're creating essentially a deficit of capital that would otherwise go elsewhere, right? That would be invested in, in a, a better thing, right? Um, and this is where, you know, I think that a lot of ETH maxis, right, um, were very negative towards Solana, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons, right, um, of, of why that was the case. But my view was always like, look, I'm not going to support Solana. I'm, I'm supporting Ethereum. I think that's where my capital is best deployed, right? But as an experiment in the world, it is valuable. If we are wrong and Solana is right, and we somehow had the ability to shut down Solana or Avalanche or Cosmos or Polkadot or any one of these Altair ones, right? That the Maxis, if they had the power to, would absolutely have shut down, right? If you know, if the regulators were full of ETH Maxis, they would have found ways to shut down Altair ones, right? Uh, for sure, right? And and so you know, there's this idea that like, okay, speculation and and um, and you know these things are are very valuable, but at the same time, if you participate in something like XRP, all you're doing is you know removing capital or, or you know allowing people to remove capital that otherwise would be reinvested into. And so you need to find a line, right? You need to find a line in terms of speculation of what you're willing to countenance and what you aren't. And for me, something like XRP is just across that line. It's just not you know it's very like in the early days, cool, fine. It wasn't clear that it was nonsense and wasn't going to work. Right. But 10 years later, it's like very obviously nonsense. And any money that's invested into it is just being extracted by, you know, a few people and it's not coming back into the ecosystem. Right. So, you know, trying to avoid that and trying to discourage people from participating in systems like that, um, I think, you know, is beneficial. Same thing with like hex, right? Like don't encourage hex. Like you could trade hex for sure. And I'm sure a lot of people did. And they're like, no, no, I'm just a trader. Like, it's fine. I'm just trading this thing and, you know, whatever. But like, it's a net negative to the ecosystem. And it's obviously so, right? And so, you know, my view would be don't trade hex. Yes, you can and you can make money or lose money or whatever. And like, it's speculation on some level. Uh, but it's also, I think, a net negative, right? And there's some things you just need to make a call that you're not going to participate in because it's not going to be beneficial for the entire ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, so, okay. I completely misinterpreted that tweet. I thought it was going to be about decentralization, but it's actually about speculation. So my segue doesn't well, make so, as much sense so, anymore. Well, no, no, no. So I think it like the reason why XRP is actually about decentralization is that it is a scam. It's not a real thing, right? Like XRP is not a real cryptocurrency in the sense of, you know, uh, like, I don't know. I'm like phantom, 
right? Like Phantom, you could say, okay, like it's a bit centralized, you know, there's some issues with it, the ecosystems had some problems or whatever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm personally a fan of Andre. And I think, you know, ultimately, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, there's been some issues with it, for sure, right? Um, but it's not like, a obvious scam. Right, like XRP is just a grift, right? It's like selling this thing that is not real, that will never work, right? Like the idea that XRP will be used to transfer money around the world as a replacement of SWIFT, and I've tweeted about this as well, like it's just nonsense, right? Like it's demonstrably, obviously wrong, right? And yet, you know, the right thing to do for a startup at that point would be to say, okay, we're going to pivot away from this, right? We're going to realize that we've, fuck this up and we're going to fix it, right? We're going to pivot away and we're going to try and do something else. They've got billions of dollars. That would not be hard, right? They could decide that actually this was not the right approach and we're going to shut it down, right? That's what a normal startup would do. The problem with cryptocurrencies and the ability to sell tokens is that you're not kind of forced into that, right? Because you can find unsophisticated actors who are willing to buy into your narrative and you can keep pushing that narrative long after the reality has, you know, kind of fallen apart, right? Uh, and that's what XRP is at this point. It's it's people that are selling a narrative that is nonsense to unsophisticated participants, right, um, in the ecosystem. And that, you know, those funds and that investment could go elsewhere, right? Um, you know, the right thing for Ripple to do would be like, hey, we tried this thing. It may, like, I don't even think, to be really clear, I don't even think that Ripple didn't make sense in the early days of crypto. It's okay to be wrong, right? It's okay to like have an idea for a thing and be like, this would make sense. We all thought the tokens were good media of exchange, right? Like we're all idiots, right? Like they're <laughs> not, they're terrible, right? No one's blaming you for thinking that was, you know, a really good idea in, you know, 2011, 2012, right? Um, you know, even all the way through to probably 2017, right? There was a point where it's like, all right, guys, like, let it go. This is not working out, right? But the fact that you have this centralized company that is selling this narrative to people and extracting value from the ecosystem and is not even really like a cryptocurrency in the sense of, you know, what we would know of what we'd call a cryptocurrency now or an L1 or, you know, uh, something like that is kind of insane that it's still, you know, whatever it is, top 10 token, like it's, it's madness, right? The things should be shut down, not by a regulator or by, you know, some entity coming in, but by the market, the market should have the ability to shut it down and realize that it's a dead end and, and let it go. Um, mm -hmm. And a big part of the reason for that is it, it's centralized. If it were actually less centralized, you probably would be able to pivot and a community would be able to like fix some of the inherent problems in it. But it's just controlled by like four dudes. So, you know, this, like, what are you going to do? What you said about XRP makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's probably taking my point to the extreme. My question was going to be, and I'm actually curious about this, is L2s in their current state, right? Um, which, is, which is some of them have some centralization vectors. And, and, you know, they're essentially, you know, some of them are multi-sigs. Uh, but then, you know, uh, it's not apparent that the sequencers should be decentralized, right? I think Fubar uh, uh, commented that, well, it doesn't actually make sense for these, uh, the sequencers to be decentralized. You just have to be able to get a force inclusion in the L1. Some people will say, well, then you're opening value capture up to like MEV and like the execution is where the value uh, exchange and whatnot happens. That's something like uh, what, what Tolly from Solana would say. How do you, and maybe I'm curious what the sentiment around just earlier ETH DeFi folks is on the state of L2s, but also like the decentralization of the sequencer and if that even makes sense to decentralize or 
if that's fine being centralized, provided there's an exit hatch? Yeah, so I think, you know, I'm a big proponent and of and one of the, probably the people that caught a lot of uh, of heat for progressive decentralization, right? Like Synthetics was like one of the first projects I would say that has kind of on some level proven that it's a thing, right? And the reason why it was so hard in the early days to convince people of progressive decentralization is there'd been so many people that had said, no, no, we're going to decentralize and they never did, right? And so like it became almost this like, you know, guilty until proven innocent sort of thing. So how are you supposed to prove yourself innocent when you're trying to start a project that's going to be centralized and going to slowly decentralize? People just write you off, right? And, you know, a lot of people wrote off Haven. Um, they were like, this thing is, you know, a scam or whatever, right? Like, um, and, you know, we prove them wrong by progressively decentralizing and ending up in a place where I think we're actually more decentralized than most of the projects that started decentralized, right? Um, you know, so... Uh, that is something that I think you can do. I think that it's really valuable. Um, but when you're doing progressive decentralization, the key is that you need to be in a marketplace that where there's competition, right? And so in the case of Haven, it was like, well, Haven is an experiment in this marketplace of ideas, right? If it were the only thing, then, okay, that's a bit of a problem, right? If, if the only thing started centralized and there were no, there was no competition, that would be, you know, challenging, right? Uh, but we had other things with different approaches to decentralization, Maker, um, you know, Basis, uh, you know, earlier things like BitShares, et cetera. There are a whole bunch of experiments that were running, right? Uh, and then later on, things that were more decentralized, like Liquidy, right? Um, you know, Immutable Code, to their peril, right? Um, you know, so people learn lessons, right? Like in, in different things are, are tried out. Um, and I think the same thing is true of L2s. If L2s completely fail, we still have Ethereum L1, right? Like if we spend two years going in circles and we end up in a situation where we're like, actually L2s were not a thing, right? Which is possible. Like we could absolutely get there and be like, wow, you know, optimistic rollups were a dumb idea and we should have just waited around and you know sharded ethereum until zero knowledge proofs or something like that was available right like who knows what the future might hold right um you know and, and maybe it would have been better to just stick as a monolithic l1 and somehow you know increase block size or <laughs> something crazy like that right like we don't know right um and so um i think that the fact that we have a bunch of l2s that are all competing that are right now far more centralized than l1 is okay provided that there is a genuine effort to decentralize these things, right? And that as more value is on there and as we rely on them more, that they become more decentralized. And this is one of the reasons why I think like, you know, uh, decentralized sequencers are important. Um, not necessarily because there's like a practical implication, because as you say, there's an escape hatch, right? You know, um, in most of these schemes where you can go and, and you know, uh, get transactions on L1. Um, but to me, that that feels like a bit of a like that's your absolute worst case scenario. Like we should be aspiring to something better than that. Mm -hmm. We should be aspiring to something that is like you know on a day to day basis decentralized, right? And then it's not like it's completely decentralized. And if they censor you, then you can go and do this really hard, annoying thing. I mean, we saw that with Starkware, right? Where it was like, no, 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 this is fine because you can construct your own zero knowledge proof. And then when it went down, people were like, wait, how do we do that? And everyone's like, oh, I don't think we know how. And it's like, <laughs> it, like you know, okay, you can theoretically yeah. do something, but if you can't practically do it, that's problematic. So my, my view of why I think L2s are fine to be centralized now and, and are much more centralized than L1 is that we've got a whole bunch of L2s that are competing. 
and trying different things. And some will stay more centralized or some will be more decentralized. And, you know, ultimately the market will sort it out that, you know, you want markets to solve these problems. Um, but that we should be aspiring to something that is, you know, close to and reliant on the decentralization of L1, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if, if that's the thing that is going to be processing, you know, all of this economic activity. If we can't get there, then we need to find some other technology in my mind, right? You know, we need to be pushing that decentralization uh, vector as much as possible. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think the the messaging becomes hard because you want to say what you just said, Kane, which is like the honest interpretation of it. But also when you're trying to attract new users and investors, it's kind of like if you're doing a pitch to a VC. Like you don't you don't pitch to them what's happening today. You pitch to them the future. And then that causes the conflict. It's like you're not decentralized today. Like, yes, we are. And it just causes a lot of friction and crypto that we probably don't need. Um, but assuming that L2s are the scaling solution that Ethereum uses long term, do you think it's going to be a parallel outcome? Like, do you think there's going to be three to five? Is there going to be this thing where like every app is going to have its own roll up? Do you think, you know, once an app like Synthetics gets big enough, do you just go into your own app chain? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I tried to, I tried to kind of have us coordinate on one L2 and that didn't work out very well, obviously. Um, you know, I pushed optimism for a long time and, and, you know, we ended up with 50. Um, so I definitely missed the mark on that one. Don't always get it right. Um, but I think the reality is that, you know, once you have uh, more than one, like if, if, you know, if we were genuinely trying to say, let's put all of our effort, like, for example, if the L2 had been built, um, by like the core devs and like the EF and, you know, it, it wasn't an independent entity and it was like, no, this is actually a core piece of infrastructure that is going to be like added on to Ethereum, which I think would have been a bad idea. We'd still be waiting for it. Right. Um, most likely, I think that the market moves much faster than, you know, um, any kind of coordination process like that. Um, so I think we're better off, but absent some, you know, canonical L2 that was going to be the thing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, multiple L2s uh, is probably, you know, the situation that, that we need and we kind of need to let this play out. Um, again, I come back to as a, you know, I put my protocol hat on, right? And my protocol hat says, yes, you need to be where the liquidity is. You need to deploy it to all these different places, you know, not try and pick winners on the L2 or, you know, see where the liquidity will flow or whatever. Um, and then I put my Infinex hat on and I'm like, who fucking cares? Doesn't matter, right? Just like build a thing that abstracts it away and, you know, figure out where the users are and, and put the liquidity there kind of in real time. Right. Um, and one of those feels very sensible and straightforward. And one of them feels kind of insane and you know i'll let the, the reader kind of decide which one which one makes sense right and you know that's why i'm building infinex right um but yeah look you know it just in terms of saying the quiet part out loud as well right um you know i think one of the nice things about being an og and not sort of being dependent on you know particular people in the ecosystem or, or whatever and, and having some independence is I can say the quiet part out loud, right? You know, things that people might be concerned to say if they know they've got to go out and raise a funding round in three months time, right? Um, you know, they don't want to piss off VCs or piss off, you know, this chain or that chain or whatever. Luckily for me, I'm in a position where I can kind of say whatever I want. Um, you know, to, sometimes it works out well, sometimes not so much, but... That was actually going to be my next question. Uh, so so uh, it's good that you already went there. Um, so you obviously don't need to work anymore. Um, you're one of the earlier people, earliest people in the entire ecosystem and uh, actually industry, uh, certainly DeFi, but also Ethereum. So you don't need to work anymore. Uh, so uh, maybe getting a little philosophical here, 
right? Yeah. Why are you still here? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. So I tried to not work and I went insane um, over the course of like 18 months, right? You know, and like when I say not work, right? Like, you know, I had for a very long time, I was doing startups even before I got into the crypto ecosystem. And, you know, there were times where I would work 100 plus hours a week, right? You know, I was probably addicted to work. Um, but also startups are that demanding. You know, if you've got a startup that's losing money and, you know, on death's door, you need to decide to either shut it down or you just keep putting more effort in, right? And so I've been in that situation multiple times where it was just like, get up at 6 a.m., go and pack boxes and ship them out and then, you know, do the emails and then just like you're doing everything, right? There's five people in the startup. Um, so that's not necessarily a fun experience. Um, but, you know, for me, I found it, you know, quite satisfying. And I think by the time I got to, say, you know, 2021, Right. Um, I was in a place where I was like, look, you know, I want to I want to take some time off and, and, you know, take a break and, you know, I don't really need to work to your point. Right. Um, you know, and synthetics is now sufficiently decentralized. There's a bunch of people that are working on it. The community, you know, is coordinating things. Governance works. Um, I had kind of dipped in and out of governance enough times to get a sense that actually governance didn't really need me. It was kind of fine on its own. Um, and in some ways it was beneficial to not have that single you know, point of failure there. Um, so I got myself to a point where I was like, all right, take some time off. Uh, and it was just not good for me mentally. Like I'm not someone that is that does well not being occupied, even trying to like put time into hobbies and stuff. I needed problems to solve. And, and I ended up just manufacturing chaos to like keep myself, you know, <laughs> engaged in, in life, I think. Right. Um, and so I took, I took quite a bit of time, um, really thought about like, what am I doing? You know, like, what's the point of any of this stuff, right? Like, I don't need money, right? Um, you know, but I, I got, I got to a point where I was like, there's still unsolved problems here. And while I feel very much that synthetics is kind of delivered on its vision of creating a, uh, an exchange engine that competes with centralized exchanges, which has been our goal for a long time, right? Like we're there, right? That works. There's still no users there, right? It's not 13, thankfully, but you know, it's not enough to like be able to be like, all right, you know, mission accomplished. See you later. Right. Um, and so I started thinking about why, why is that not the case? Um, and as soon as I reached the conclusion that the issue is usability and onboarding and all of these things, you know, bridging and all of the user friction that we know and love in the space, right? I was like, I just need to go and solve this. And I'm actually in a really good position to do it. And one of the nice things about participating in a decentralized organization is anyone can do that permissionlessly. Like me building Infinex is not reliant other than, you know, having capital to do stuff and having, you know, uh, cut through in the industry and being able to like talk about things and have people listen to some extent. Right. Other than that. But if I didn't have any of that, I could still turn up and build Infinex. And that's kind of crazy, right? It's not like it's someone who's coming back, you know, this is not like uh, a Steve jobs coming back to Apple sort of situation, right? Where like the guy actually, you know, puts himself at the top of the hierarchy again and makes all the decisions, right? This is like an open permissionless protocol and someone with a good idea who happens to also be the same person who built the thing in the first place turns up and says, I'm doing this thing. And the crazy thing to me, which to be honest, I was unprepared for is some of the community and contributors are like, no, we don't like this. Don't do it. And the even better thing is I was like, I don't care. I'm doing this anyway. 
you can't stop me. It's permissionless, right? Like I gave up power so that anyone could turn up and do something, right? I, I stopped myself from being this, you know, overlord, right? Um, and now you need to live with that because guess what? I'm back and I can do whatever I want and you can't stop me, right? Like there's some kind of brutal irony there, right? So, um, you know, I do think that uh, there is definitely something to be said for, um, you know, being occupied and solving hard problems. I've, I've always really loved that. And honestly, I've been more energized in the last like three months working on some of these Infinex problems than I felt in years because they're genuine problems that I think we haven't paid enough attention to because we're building the emperor and now the emperor's done and it's like you know we and like it's cr like just it's like crazily obvious things right we'll sit in a room and we're like okay we got this problem let's solve it and we like spend 20 seconds and we're like wow like that's the solution like how the fuck did that why did we not think of that before right like and it's like we just weren't even looking in that direction we're looking in the complete opposite direction no one put much thought into it and now we turn around and we're looking over here and there's just like low-hanging fruit everywhere like just obvious you know really um easy solutions to make people's lives better so um you know that's exciting and and you know it's been it's been pretty fun Okay, and I, I would call you an, an artist just as much as an as a entrepreneur and not to make a shot at, at people working on protocols, because we obviously have a lot of geniuses in the space right now and highly creative people. But do you think there is a long term like conflict between people like you who might uh, consider more of an artist looking forward working in a DAO? Because you've probably bumped into when you have this like governing body that wants to move slow and it's hard for them to look ahead. Does that not like push out people like you into something else? Yeah, look, it's been interesting. It's been really interesting, right? Like I've had a couple of clashes with people in the core contributors and even in the community um, where they have just a different mindset, right? And there's multiple layers to this, obviously, because people have different incentives, right? Um, you know, people who have been fairly successful but have not, you know, made what like Talib would call like fuck you money, right? Like, you know, to be able to just say like, I can say whatever I want. I don't care what anyone says, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people in the space, DeFi OGs who've done that, right? Some of them have gone on to, you know, uh, hentai uh, Twitter careers, like, you know, DGen Spartan, right? Um, and some of them, you know, ha are still sticking around and building stuff, right? Like they're onto their second project or third project or something like that, right? You know, Stanny building lens and Robert building super state. And, you know, so um, I think that you can, there's always some new thing that if you're a builder and you want to solve problems, you can go and do, right? You don't need to go and build something in the ecosystem that you were, were already involved in, right? And Lens and, and Ave are a great example of that, right? Like very different projects in very different spaces, um, you know, but I think they're both quite amenable to, the vision that someone like Astani has, right? Um, and so what I found funny in dealing with the synthetics community is the synthetics community with me gone has gotten much better at optimizing for the obvious path, right? They're much more efficient at getting down that straight line, right? Um, and of course they are, because there's not some lunatic distracting them every two minutes with like, what about this thing? What about that thing? Right. They're just like, nope, here's the thing. And we're just going to go and do it. Right. Um, and that's cool, but it's a little bit like, you know, the innovators dilemma sort of problem, right. Of like, they're not seeing the weird stuff, you know, the, the industry is evolving all the time and they're not seeing the stuff that's on the periphery that could influence and, and impact what they're doing. Right. They're just like, nope. 
like tunnel vision. This is what we're, this is what we're going for. Um, and so I do think that that is a trade off, I guess, um, that you need to manage, you know, when, when you don't have someone who is leading the project who started off with that kind of weird, like vision sort of thing of like, you know, looking way to the future of like how we're going to solve these problems uh, versus like kind of practical day-to-day reality of like, we need to do this and then step two and step three and step four. Um, sometimes you need to, you know, branch out. And so it does create a bit of conflict. It, it has been interesting to see. Um, but the nice thing is that, you know, if there's a, too much conflict, then, you know, you just go and build something else in the space. There's still tons of unsolved problems. Yeah, I think the last little bit I'd, I'd add to that, which I think a lot of people don't really realize yet in crypto when you have these DAO decisions is, for example, Synthetics was using Chainlink for like four years to be their Oracle. And then you switched over to Pith um, just, you know, to help performance, have fewer front runs, et cetera. Um, even though Chainlink was like, hey, we will come out with a product for you. It's just going to take some time. Um, but the community decided to go with Pith because it's something that could be like in production sooner. Um, but then it, it has like these secondary effects. For example, like if Synthetics does get to the point where you want to use CCIP, which is Chainlink's like cross-chain communication protocol, um, while you partnered with Chainlink, you may have had more influence over that, similar to how you had more influence over Optimism, where it could be like specifically designed to help support synthetics. So it is, it is interesting to think that DAOs probably have a harder time. Maybe I'm, you know, being too critical here of thinking about those like secondary effects instead of just those short-term um, options. Well, I mean, one one other component is you essentially have, you know, even the DAOs that I would say were led by someone who's maybe strong product or engineering or whatever. I'm not an engineer, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a product person, right? I, I think through solutions and, and how to kind of, you know, uh, put all these things together, right? Um, synthetics at this point is really run by engineers. Like that was the majority of people who were there, right? Um, when I kind of handed over power, right? And even within the counts, the councils are, you know, there's multiple engineers, right, within the councils, right? And, you know, engineers have a very specific way of looking at things, right? And, and you know, they've got a bunch of biases, right? And one of the big biases for engineers is if I didn't make it, then it must be a piece of shit, right? It's just like, it's just a inherent bias that they have, right? And, like, even when they say, like, no, 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 it's okay, I like other stuff, right? It's like, well, like... You say that, but, you know, and so one of the things that I have found quite interesting um, in watching the synthetics community uh, over the last couple of years, as I've been, you know, not controlling decisions, has been to see this sort of desire to, like, make things internally versus using something that's off the shelf, right? And and I was actually having a conversation yesterday um, with one of the CCs, and I said, you know what, like, if the people who are running synthetics today were running synthetics back in 2019, I don't think they would have used Chainlink in the first place. I actually think they would have doubled down and said, no, we're going to fix our internal Oracle because we'd already built an Oracle, right? Like we built an Oracle because there weren't Oracles. So we had to build one, right? And then, you know, there were three or four different Oracle projects that were out there at the time, Teller and, you know, Chainlink and a couple of others, right? And we went and reviewed them all and we came to the conclusion that, you know, off offloading this to someone else who was building a specific thing was going to be the best bet, right? And this was a bit of a leap of faith because Chainlink wasn't even live at that point, right? But we got confident that they could deliver this and they did and they have and, you know, they've ended up underpinning, you know, a significant portion of DeFi activity in the industry because of it. But, you know, there was definitely a leap of faith. Like it was not clear that this was a thing that was going to work. 
I'm very confident that the synthetics, you know, team, whatever that's that's running things now, the people that are that are kind of you know in charge of this um, these decisions would not use Chainlink. They, they just wouldn't. You know, it would be too hard to get it through DAO governance. The engineers would be against it. They'd want to build it themselves. Um, which you know, obviously, it's a counterfactual. We'll never know. But I really feel strongly that that's the case. And to me, that's a bit insane. That's a bit problematic and a bit worrisome, right? That like we're at a point where we're so confident in our own ability as synthetics that leveraging some external protocol, um, you know, is is not a good idea. All right. Well, talking about insanity, let's do a quick segment of rapid fire. Um, sure. I'm, I'm sure you know what it is, but just going to ask you some quick questions, answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, and then sure. Garrett, Garrett might jump in and ask them as well. Um, all right. So first question, what do you think is the most overrated idea in crypto? Uh, soulbound NFTs. Can you expand? Soulbound tokens. Yeah, like tokens that are locked to a specific address, right? Like this is like one of Vitalik's ideas. And, you know, it's yeah. nice to know that he does have dumb ideas every once in a while. Um, but yeah, soulbound tokens, I think, are just like very inane and pointless. It's like the worst form of spam that you can't get out of your mailbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not, I, I'm not a fan. Um, so, okay, you, you, you've said you've done a lot of startups um, and you're, I mean, you're essentially going to die if you don't do startups. You kind of have that urge to just work on these problems. What is the number one lesson you've learned about startups? That you have to question assumptions. You know, you, you have to continually question assumptions because humans uh, just fall into um, the status quo and, and biases very easily. Um, and so if you're not questioning assumptions every day, then you're going to go down the wrong path. All right. I've, I've got to follow up on that. What is... Um... Max token supply is a meme. So, for example, I think at one point you wanted synthetics to only have, well, I think it was maybe 300 million tokens. Is that something that we just adopted from Bitcoin? Is it a meme? Is it useful? What do you think? I actually think it's defaults. Defaults are incredibly powerful. And in the ERC20 contract, the first thing it says to you is, how many tokens do you want? And so the default is that you have to answer that question, right? If that wasn't there, if it was like, you know, some function that you could import or some interface, right? Um, and you didn't have to put a static number in there, then I think it would have opened up a lot more experimentation. And it eventually did. We eventually got there. Uh, but, you know, the standard contract and the default is really powerful. And so the default was, how many tokens? Will decentralized stablecoins ever work? Yes, absolutely. Um, what vertical other than DeFi are you most bullish on in crypto? In crypto, um, I think weird bonding curve games. I've been waiting for bonding curves to make a comeback for a while. And I think that people underestimate how powerful uh, an incentive mechanism bonding curves are. And what do you think is the worst or maybe most overrated vertical in crypto that doesn't really hold that much weight? Um, right now, sadly, music NFTs, because I'm a musician and I think that they're like overhyped and they're not, you know, it's a solution looking for a problem. Um, I would love to see something, you know, in the music crypto, uh, thing that, that works, but so far I think it's been, um, not that interesting. What's something you've turned your mind on completely since you've started in crypto? Uh, oh God, there's so many things. Um. I would say uh, using tokens as uh, payment mechanisms. 
the idea that like, you know, using tokens is money, right? Like stable coins are just a much obvious, uh, much more obvious and, and better solution. Um, I think the other thing that it, probably a better one um, is real world assets. Um, I came into crypto thinking that real world assets are a really good idea. And within 20 minutes, I was like, actually, this is nonsense. And now I've come back full circle. and I'm like, actually, real world assets are a good idea. Um, what is your most controversial opinion? Do you think that you're absolutely convinced is right? Uh, I'm a strong determinist. So I believe that, uh, there is that every, um, everything that happens is predetermined based on, uh, like macroscopic interactions. If you had to pick one crypto application other than DeFi to use to get everyday people to start using crypto, what would that app be? I think it's gaming, pretty obviously. Like there'll be some breakout game, and that's going to you know drive uh, a ton of activity. Kane might be biased because his brother is building Alluvium. Just going to put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. No, but I, I like people, people care so much more about games than they care about finance, right? Like finance is a means to an end for people. You know, like you don't care about your bank that much. You don't care about the tech behind your bank. Um, you know, I think social things um, are so much more powerful. You know, movies, games, TV, um, you know, those things really drive uh, attention. Um, you know, even books, right, are far more interesting than finance. Um, and so I think that'll be something in, in like media landscape. So on that train of thought, what do you think about Frentech? I really like Frentech. Um, I think, you know, it's a it's a super interesting experiment, but like all of these things is the experiment, right? The fact that in spite of it being utterly unusable for like weeks and weeks and weeks at launch that it still got traction there's something there right and ultimately there's bonding curves at the core of it right and i think that this is where like really the bonding curves are doing the heavy lifting and people don't realize that that's actually what's happening like all of the other it's like a bonding curve that's been like dressed up in a fancy wrapper um and i think that other experiments in bonding curves have the potential to be much more powerful because the bonding curve on friend tech i think is a bit messed up um and you know again it's an experiment there'll be other experiments and i think that it wouldn't surprise me if um some friend tech clone or some other bonding curve type social thing uh you know was ended up being much more powerful last question what is the most crucial piece of advice you would give to an aspiring or current DeFi founder you need to lean into the narratives, right? It might feel like you've got some domain expertise or specialized, you know, um, perspective on the world or whatever. Um, but if you go into the market with some very specific idea of how you're going to do something or solve some problem, um, most likely you're going to find out that actually you're wrong, right? And that you're kind of, you know, pushing things uphill. Right. Um, and so, you know, the leaning into things that the, the world wants is always easier. Right. Um, and so tapping into whatever the narratives are. So, you know, things like in crypto at the moment, there's a bunch of narratives, a bunch of meta, right? Like even, you know, social games like friend tech, et cetera. Um, you know, so if you came in into the market right now and said, I'm going to build developer tooling. Right, because I'm an engineer and I know developer tooling or whatever. Right, like good luck to you. You know, like no one's interested in it. 
you, you, the effort that you would need to go through to build something in that category that would get enough traction to be interesting to get investment and therefore you know scale up is going to be multiple orders of magnitude higher than something that taps into an existing narrative. And I think that first-time founders really fall into this trap of thinking that they need to really care about the thing that they're doing. Um, you know, but there's so many counterexamples of that, of founders who launch things like, you know, Airbnb, right? Like, did any of those guys care about houses or hotels? You know, like, no, right? Like, but that wasn't even the idea. The idea was something, you know, totally different, right? So, um, you know, there's, there's just so many examples of you don't need to be a domain expert in the thing that you're doing. Come in and see what the world wants and try and solve that problem. Don't decide what you think the world needs necessarily and, and, you know, try and do that. Now, the counterpoint to that is users have no idea what they want typically, right? And so if you go and interview users and say like, hey, what do you want, right? You get, you know, 16 cameras on the front, you know, front facing cameras on your phone, right? Like the Fire Phone. So, you know, don't necessarily interview users, like find out what the world genuinely wants by like seeing what the narratives are that are powerful, which doesn't mean user interviews. It means like really understanding the world, right? And you're kind of getting the zeitgeist. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, if you do that and you lean into that, you'll have a much, much better time and, and you, it'll be much easier for you to get attention and capital and, and build something that is you know, meaningful. I think Henry Ford has a good quote on that. I don't know if it's Henry Ford, but I think it's something like, <laughs> if I asked what users wanted, they would have said faster horses uh, or, or something yeah, exactly. like that. So yeah. Yeah. That sounds apocryphal, but you know, it's, it's a good <laughs> illustration of it, right? Yeah. Like, listen, listen to their problems, not their wants. Um, Kane, thank you so much for coming on. This is a really fun conversation. I'm excited to see like what happens with Impinex. I think it's one of the like coolest projects happening in crypto right now. I love like you have a slogan for it. It's like nothing is sacred but the user experience. And I think that's really how me and Mert like to think about things. And I think that's probably something crypto could like adopt, you know, to a wider we scale. We need more of that. We need more of that, 100%. definitely. Um, but yeah, thanks yeah. so much for coming on. We'd love to have you on in a couple months. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Sweet. We'll see you next time.